Okay, I think it's really fitting that a creepy robotic voice uh, from Zoom just kicked this off with a recording in progress. Uh, James Polis, how are you, man? Isaac, I'm well. How are you? Doing very well. I'm really looking forward to this. I, I don't know you personally, but I have heard your name floating around for quite a while. And in recent months, I've been following you on Twitter and then more recently Twitch. And I've seen this book that you're coming out with, which has just dropped today on Canonic called Human Forever. And I've been very, very intrigued. I'm like, I think I have sort of an idea of what your main thesis is, kind of, but I haven't actually looked into it. So that's what I'm really excited to be able to dive in uh, here and chat with you about. Let's do it. Okay. Give us first, let's start with the book and then we'll kind of, then we'll kind of work backwards and get a little backfilling on your own story. Give me the elevator pitch synopsis. What is Human Forever about? Let me read the subtitle. It's uh, Human Forever, the digital politics of spiritual war. That's so, so intriguing. Give me the elevator pitch on the book. All right. So uh, we created these digital devices that everyone is now very familiar with. Some of them are, are visible hardware. Some of them are invisible, flying through the air, passing through our bodies, our buildings, capable of doing things that until a few years ago were really only considered to be the province of angels and demons. So we've created these tremendous technologies. They've really swallowed the world. They rule the world in a way that no person or group of people can any longer rule the world. And this is a big shock. Uh, the people who created these devices really expected them to complete or consummate their their globalizing form of rule coming out of the Cold War. Uh, you know, they, they really thought that it was going to be a slam dunk sometime around election night 2016. Uh, and in fact, their their predictions and their expectations were quite wrong. Uh, they were shocked to discover uh, that these tools are being used by people uh, in in their own ways. Um, you know that that people with wrong opinions on the internet were organizing and and sharing and broadcasting their wrong opinions. Um, and what they realized is they actually didn't have the level of control, uh, the level of determinacy. Uh, that they thought that they did. Um, and so, you know, we've seen since since then, but even, you know, a, a ways before then, a string of sort of embarrassing failures and reversals among the ruling factions in the globalized West, uh, ranging from, you know, total failure to predict something like the Arab Spring and how that went down uh, to, you know, the the many embarrassments that Five Eyes has experienced in terms of, uh, of, of leaks and, and breaches and data being just sort of lifted and carried away by the Chinese government, among others. Um, the financial crisis, you know, it's a, it's a, been a long train of oopsies. And, uh, and we're now at a, a sort of inflection point where, uh, where the, the folks in charge are saying, um, if we're going to remain in power, we need to figure out a, a real way. We need to get it right this time, figure out how to take control of all of these devices so that we can remain sort of global, you know, global governors, uh, participators in global governance. Um, that turns out to be uh, a very ambitious undertaking. Um, and in order to uh, in order to, to pull that off, basically what they need to do um, is they need to uh, master the form uh, that digital technology takes, which is the form of the swarm. Uh, 5G means that uh, we have basically zero latency. And so, uh, you know, we've got basically an, an infinity of these devices already. Um, and if they can all communicate with each other, if they're all connected together uh, instantaneously, we are really just stepping out of human space time. And so uh, if you were a member of, uh, you know, one of the, the factions that is, that is wielding rule in the West right now, uh, your game plan is basically to, uh, to master those machines and, and through those machines to master us. 
and the way that cashes out, um, I would argue, is really to just onboard everyone into uh, what I call a cyborg vivarium. Uh, a place where you know what is expected of you in order to get good social credit points and not to lose social credit points uh, is really to merge your consciousness increasingly with digital technology and to do so uh, according to rules set by uh, by by regulators and and governors from from on high. Uh, that's at odds with uh, Americans' way of life. It's at odds with our form of government. Uh, and it's not just Americans who feel this way. Uh, you know, you look at the viral pictures of people sort of mobbing uh, in the, the town squares, various cities across the West, uh, protesting uh, lockdowns and vaccine mandates. Why are they doing this? Uh, they're not doing this because, you know, they, they, they're afraid of, of medical science or whatever. They're doing it because they understand on some gut level uh, that what we're experiencing is an attempt uh, to transform uh, politics, transform our identity, um, and transform our way of life uh, by by the folks in charge, uh, and so we're experiencing a digital civil war right now, uh, and that the nature of that war is a spiritual war. Uh, the, the 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 power and and the scope of this technology raises fundamental questions about who we are, why we should remain that way, what's so good about being human after all, um, and how can we flourish under those conditions? A lot of people these days are saying actually humanity sucks, uh, God is dead, there's no soul, humanity sucks, math is everything. And you know that's that's a choice, but I don't think it's a choice that's going to end in utopia. I don't think it's going to turn us into gods. I don't think it's going to turn us into bugs. I think we're stuck being human, and that's not bad news. Uh, so now is the time for us to figure out how to preserve our humanity by getting our hands back on the controls of the most powerful digital technology, such as Bitcoin, which we can talk about. Uh, and that's what this book is designed to help people understand. Man, I love the you've got me all uh, fired up because you're you're navigating the reality that we observe and placing it in a theoretical frame that that doesn't err on either side, I would say, that doesn't fall prey to what's really tempting to do. It's to either be black-pilled, so to speak, and be like, you know, the they, the, the evil, you know, whether it's political masters or demonic forces or whatever, they control everything. We're moving into some dystopian black mirror hellscape. It's all horrible. There's nothing to do about it. It's just going to, you know, it's, it's nowhere to go but down. A very dark message. And it's very easy to go that direction, even for someone like me, who's like a relentless optimist since early 2020. It's kind of been like, oh, my gosh, things are way worse than I thought. And, and you, don't, you don't have that frame. You have this very optimistic pro-human thing, but you also don't have a, in sort of saying, hey, this is something to be resisted. And, and these sort of powers that be. Um, they're not winning. They're stumbling around too. They're doing a lot of stupid stuff. They got blindsided by the positive elements of technology. You're not taking it in a Luddite direction either and saying smash, you know, the solution is to smash technology and technology is 100% alienating. You know, humans should never innovate. We should still be living at some subsistence level or whatever. Or as I heard one person say one time, like the minute, the minute a human first looked at an animal as a food source, that was the day that everything became corrupt. You know, it's like, it's like, how far back are you going to go to get pure, to cleanse our hands of all this horrible technology? That seems like a very anti-human approach. Um, but so does the sort of Ray Kurzweil, just plug your brain into the cloud and like, you know, either, either abandoning our humanity for technology as some sort of salvific thing. That seems very dark and scary to me. And you seem to, to not present that as the solution. But smashing all technology to go live back in, in caves also seems anti-human. Humans are, 
are wired for progress and for tinkering and for innovating and for making tools. And it's not a bad thing, but there's, there's a danger in there. So anyway, I feel like you're navigating that um, in a really interesting way. I guess, first, let me ask you, what, how would you define the they, uh, the, the, the people that are attempting to sort of create a technocracy or to say, look, this technology kind of got, you know, got out of the bag, so to speak, and, and is, you know, we were surprised by things like Arab Spring and, and um, you know, some of these things that, that have happened very much because of or in alignment with technological advancements. Who, who is behind that? Who would you consider that sort of, you know, for lack of a better term, the enemy, the people that, that wants to put you in some kind of technocracy? Well, you know, uh, again, I mean, the, <clears throat> I think it's clear when you open the box sort of what's inside and, and why that's a problem. Uh, but you don't have to be a sort of nefarious lizard person communicating with, you know, the uh, the spirits of uh, dead Martians from a million B.C. in order to, you know, have that, these. That's, kind a lot, of... that's a lot more interesting, though. I, I like that. I like that, <laughs> at least as a metaphor. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, you know, like like uh, there are nefarious people at all levels of life and in all walks of life. And, you know, it's. You shouldn't be shocked if you encounter them in your daily life. You shouldn't be shocked if you encounter it, them in the upper echelons of power. Right? Like, hey, you know, like human beings, yeah. human beings are imperfect. We are, we are errant and we go astray. And that frustrates a lot of people. People don't like to be told no. They don't like the thought that we have limits. Uh, and, we, and they don't like the thought that we're stuck with, with imperfection. Uh, that, that desperation for purity that you mentioned um, is a very old, you know, Gnostic heresy that weaves through pretty much every, you know, every Western religion, every denomination. No one is safe from the Gnostic temptation, which is basically, uh, you know, that through knowledge we can purify the spirit within and break the the control of nature of our of our flawed uh, bodies and uh, and 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 emerge into purity. So you have, you know, you, you really. I mean, I talk about this in, in terms of like three types of optimism. So type one is uh, is the kind of optimism in humanity that we associate with like John Lennon, right? Uh, or, you know, like the United Nations, uh, where it's like, we'll all come together. And, you know, if we just abandon our ancient hatreds, if we forget what makes us bad, then we can sort of have a clean slate and we can be pure. Uh, if we if we turn against memory and we idolize the imagination, the imagination is the key to achieving perfection. Uh, then there's a second kind of optimism, which is... Uh, well, you know, the, the people who are optimistic in humanity uh, didn't pay attention to, uh, to reality. Um, you know, they, they didn't recognize how flawed uh, human beings are and how easily they forgot that, you know, when push comes to shove, oftentimes we just massacre dozens of millions of, of each other. And, you know, a lot of people are, are really just kind of ugly and stupid and there's inbreeding and, you know, we can't count on human beings to save human beings uh, after all. And so therefore we need to create technologies that can save us. Uh, if we really just, you know, turn against all of the things that make people all too human, uh, then we can pour all of our resources into, you know, sort of creating these mechanical gods that can uh, that can run our societies for us in a way that's better uh, and more predictable and more complete than than how we can do ourselves. And you know, if with with luck and a little bit of hard work, uh, maybe we can even create machines uh, that become gateways to divinity for us. Um, so you've got uh, this kind of optimism in technology, uh, but you know that that itself is, I think, uh, a denies reality in an important respect. You know, you got all these guys out there, whether they're they're waving the math signs at the Andrew Yang rally, uh, or whether they're you know Bertrand Russell acolytes, 
Uh, and they really believe that like, we can do this guys, we can create the, the, what, what Umberto Eco called the search for the perfect language, right? That we can create a math, a programming language that is so deterministic. A, a story in the Bible, uh, <laughs> some, some, so, some loose parallels here. Yeah, there are a few, there are a few stories and, and they really think that, you know, like, uh, like Norbert Wiener was wrong. Uh, th that that technology is not like a monkey's paw. That you know, if you really just get the smart in the room together, smartest people in the planet, they can build a sort of cosmic computer uh, that will uh, give us uh, an escape path from all that sucks about being human, all that we feel resentful toward. Um, and you know, and and in fact, if you just take a cursory look at something like uh, quantum astrophysics. What you discover is if you like tunnel down into, you know, looking for the foundations of math, it's, it's there's not some rationalistic substratum there. It's there's no substrate like that. It's actually like, oh, wow, like this particle can actually exist on the other end of the universe at the same time in ways that we can't really measure or understand. We can just kind of glimpse it. Um, and that's just one example. So, you know, I think I think that worship of math, idolatry toward math. Uh, really just leads you to turn into a snake eating its own tail. And so what are we left with if, if over-optimism in humanity doesn't work and over-optimism in technology doesn't work? And that's kind of one corner of the civil war we're experiencing. You got Wokies on one side who say, no, the only way that we can make technology pure is by putting the right ethicists in charge. We need woke czars in charge of everything. That's the only way we can redeem this technology. And then you got techies on the other side who say like, well, you know, we would accept wokeness as long as ultimately it's the math guys in charge. And they're fighting over over this, you know, cyborg vivarium that's that's being constructed. But I would suggest that the best option, really the only option, if you want to remain human, um, is a third kind of optimism, which says, look, we are inherently flawed. We do have limits. Uh, we are incarnate and souled beings, and we're not gods, and we're not bugs. And we're kind of like, we've been given this status and this identity, and there's still so much that we can do with it. And the the wisdom of the ages that we have inherited is not something that needs to be forgotten. And uh, and putting ourselves at the mercy of our imaginations, we know that that leads to disastrous outcomes. We know that utopianism and dystopianism are both dangerous uh, and that both, you know, sidetrack us from reality and spin us oftentimes into these, you know, dream cycles from which there is no escape. So the kind of optimism that I, you know, that, that, that I want to offer is one that says, look, you know, there's so much catastrophe mongering, so many people every day you wake up and it's like this crisis, that crisis, you have to face the crisis. There's only, we're all in this together and our fate rises and falls and our ability to just like solve the, all of these crises. The crisis has already happened. The digital catastrophe has already happened. Everyone's kind of a cyborg now. We all have smartphones. They're not going away. We're not going to like EMP each other into the Stone Age and start over again. Probably, I you know can't see the future, but we don't need to do that either. What we need to do is we need to remember who we are. We need to reconcile ourselves with the gift of our humanity, and we need to uh, regain, uh, reassert control over technology in our space time uh, that protects and defends and advances our human way of life. This is what every civilization state in the world is doing right now, if they can. The Chinese are obviously doing this with the Great Firewall and trying to make their, their robots Taoist. Uh, the Russians are doing this. You know, their response to, uh, to the digital catastrophe was to build an enormous military cathedral outside of Moscow that looks like, you know, it, it sort of uh, uh, landed from, from a, a far off galaxy in, in you know, 2048. Um, the Israelis, the Indians, um, all figuring out ways to sort of 
exercise sovereign control over the technology within their space time by reaching down to the most fundamental, unique resources of their civilization, which in, you know, in all those cases is ultimately a religious one. And so in the West, where you have like much more religious factionalism, religious conflict, uh, you see a power struggle going on. Um, you know, the Vatican is involved, uh, the crown, the British crown is involved. Uh, the Hungarians are trying to do some stuff. And then of course, you know, in the U S um, Things are intense. Things are intense right now because people are starting to realize what the stakes are. Uh, and the, the big challenge for us is to recognize that America has always been at, at bottom a pretty pluralistic place, uh, you know, moderated in some ways. But you, you got these different folkways, these different different groups of people. Um, that's not something that you can wipe away by just uh, hurting everyone into into one cyborg vivarium to rule them all. People, it, the graft will not take. Uh, I don't know if you saw the latest, uh, the, the Venom sequel, right? Where, uh, I haven't where, seen it. Yeah. Okay. So like, so like Venom has to like fight his kind of like his, uh, his nemesis spawned from his own sort of, uh, molecular blobs or whatever. Um, and, uh, and so the, the monster that is created that he has to battle against, um, inhabits Woody Harrelson's body, uh, Venom inhabits Tom Hardy's body. I'm not going to take the exegesis much, much farther than this, but like for Venom, it's like the graft, the, the sort of interstellar, uh, amoeba blob thing, um, for, you know, comic book reasons, uh, the graft takes with Tom Hardy's body so they can live in kind of like, a you know, it's, it's not always hearts and flowers, but it's a sustainable relationship. Whereas the, uh, the carnage and, uh, and, and Woody Harrelson graft doesn't take, they're not complimentary. Um, and so, you know, if, if these, if the people in charge are trying to turn the U S into a host body for a, you know, a, a sort of woke social credit system, uh, the graft is not going to take. And, uh, and that is why we're in the conflict that we're in right now. I was thinking of, uh, in the show Arrested Development, uh, graft versus host disease, where, <laughs> where the character it does hair implants and the doctor tells him, uh, your body's not rejecting the implant. The implant is rejecting your body and it's slowly killing him. Um, <laughs> uh, as you're talking, I'm totally getting why you use the sort of pro-human, team human. This is human that you are humanity that you are advocating what is uniquely human because i it's funny as you're going i've been on a very interesting um or very you know sort of parallel intellectual journey over the last several years around a lot of these same themes and just i keep coming back to like the real crisis the real problem at all times is always just the problem of being human, which is that humans are both material and spiritual beings and trying to have that united identity. Like that is the human problem. That's the gift. That's the burden. That's the, that's the source of the wonder and the pain, right? It's that, it's that combination. And I think it's interesting. You kind of look, you know, historically you have these two different ways of trying to, to deal with that problem, trying to pick one or the other. You have the sort of Gnosticism, which is like, well, all the material parts are dirty and they're bad and let's escape into a, a spiritual. And that has very different variations, just, you know, tripping on mushrooms or whatever. There's all kinds of different, you know, that kind of fall under that category of, well, the material part's all phony. It's all fake. It's all corrupt. Let's just get lost in the spirit realm. And then the material version is sort of like, we escape through the material. Like today that might be manifest as we, we literally leave the planet and go to the moon and settle on them. Because like if we, we can escape, we can use, we can use materiality to escape all these horrible religious and sort of spiritual ideas that have corrupted people. 
What's interesting about the world today, the sides that you described, the way you sort of laid it out in your book, which is similar, but it's not exactly the same of the sort of woke type saying, hey, let's enter John Lennon world of uh, a realm of pure imagination like Willy Wonka. Uh, and let's just, you know, sort of be better, have better ideas and forget all of the traditions and hatreds and concepts and categories and definitions that cause conflict. And then the sort of technocratic, you know, well, let's just let math solve the problem. What's weird about those is neither of them are particularly overtly spiritual. Like there's almost like a materialism or like a, at least an agnosticism or an atheism woven into, even it's about, even though it's about sort of becoming new types of people, a new man, as a Marxist might say, on the sort of social justice side, it's very, like it is spiritual, I think, but it's not overtly spiritual. It's almost unknowingly spiritual. I don't know. I, I'm curious your take on that, because I, I see both of those sides as trying to both be materialist, even though they're not necessarily doing a very good job. Um, and I think part of that is why a growing number of people, especially younger people, are not attracted to either of those. And there is this kind of resurgent interest in tradition and traditional religion and something that you know, it has more of a spiritual component. What, what, what's your take on that? Well, yeah, I mean, I think, like I said, the, the, the phenomenon of these technologies is forcing people into a confrontation with the reality of our human identity. I mean, I think, you know, many of us have heard for a long time, the catchphrase spiritual, but not religious. Uh, and that, you know, that used to make some sense. Well, organized religion, you know, it's, it's not what it used to be. And aren't they all just pedos? And like, you just go in there and they're speaking some language you don't understand. And it's a two hour ceremony. And like, is, is the way for really Jesus? I mean, you can't be serious. You know, all these sort of criticisms, but people not wanting to go full, you know, Sam Harris or, or Steven Pinker or whatever. Even, even Sam Harris is into like transcendental meditation these days, right? Well, <laughs> right. And, you know, you look at a guy like, uh, like Yuval Harari and, you know, his great teacher was, uh, was, you know, a, uh, a, 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 a sort of meditation guru whose view was that Buddhism was science. Uh, and so the, you know, these people have been trying to kind of have it both ways for a long time, but the idea that like, there's a sustainable spiritualism for people who don't believe that they have souls is now creaking under the pressure of this world that we have created, uh, you know, is, um, is the body sacred? Is the soul real? These are questions that are now not escapable. Um, and, and there are going to be different answers to these questions and different civilizations are going to pose different answers and stake their, their coherence and their sanity and their survival on those different answers. And so, you know, I, I mean, definitely, <laughs> I, like many people, have strongly held uh, opinions and beliefs and convictions about these things. Uh, but the time when it, you could imagine one basket of doctrines taking over the world, uh, that time's over. Um, and if we do not recognize this, uh, then the spiritual war is going to become, uh, you know, a shooting war or, or worse, you know, a violent digital war, which we, we have not really seen. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, look, you don't have to be a Christian to believe in the soul. I mean, just ask, 
you know, one of the world's other major religions or even ask Aristotle, you know, Aristotle was uh, very practical about these things. So look, there's anima. It's the, sort of the breath of life that that goes through the, the living organism. But but even more so, he you know, he said that the, the, the soul is the formal cause of the of the creature of the being. Um, and that's, you know, that's the kind of thing that is not a religious doctrine uh, and one that just makes the heads of so many, you know, math people who just soy face at math makes their heads explode and not not in the way they want. Uh, but these, you know, these these kinds of insights, these kinds of perceptions and sensibilities are flooding back into the realm of consciousness. And it's a hard change for people to make. And a lot of people, you know, they haven't been prepared. They haven't been educated to make this change. Uh, they still, you know, they still think that like, well, if my normie fantasies are collapsing in this new world, then I guess that just means I need extreme fantasies. And maybe I can just hunker down in those and survive the great disenchantment. Uh, and, you know, and, and just flip through TikTok for a minute and you see, I mean, it's it's one thing to sort of like be be proud of the way that you like to have sex or whatever, but it's that that is becoming like a vehicle for people to try to escape their humanity and to like become this kind of protean blob of possibility that can be assembled into a swarm that they can lose their sort of individual identity into this swarm in imitation of of our digital devices and entities. Uh, you know, these kinds of transformations, I, you just look at something like, you know, like, like transsexualism, right? And it's like, back in 1998, when the Wachowskis were still men, uh, the, the whole concept of like, I'm changing my biological sex just had a different valence to it than it does today, when today what it is, is, you know, you're not really changing your sex, you are becoming a cyborg. And it's the most powerful first step that people can take and that people understand into completely sort of breaking the hold of their natural bodies on their identity uh, so that they can ostensibly elevate into some higher form. I mean, that's you can see this in the way that like it took maybe a year or two for trans to get their stripe on the woke flag and to move way up to the very top of the stack of the woke hierarchy. I mean, these things are happening because of the independent formative imp impact influence that digital technology has on us. And uh, the, the sooner that we're cognizant of this, the easier it's going to be for us to pass through this filter and preserve our humanity. And it's so interesting when you, you said used a phrase something like uh, people are sort of becoming a, a protein blob of possibility um, rather than kind of a concrete distinct uh, thing or, or, or avoiding a, a tight category or something like that it's so that they can have all these, they can be all these possibilities. And that, that resonated with me because for the last decade, you know, my work has primarily been with people, young people getting started on their careers. And just in the career space, I have noticed this trend that has only escalated where there's like, a, like almost like a fetishization or idolization of theoretical possibilities at the expense of concrete opportunities. So like options, well, I want to have all these options. I could do anything. I could be anything. And then you're like, great here is an actual opportunity right now. Someone's willing to pay you to do this thing that you say you're really interested in. And there is a terror of facing that because the minute you say yes to a concrete opportunity, your opportunity cost is all these theoretical things that you could be doing. And so there's this, this like crazy tendency to stay completely unemployed and do nothing 
because when you're doing nothing, you could theoretically be doing anything. But if you're doing content marketing for one specific company, well, there you go. That's all you're doing. Now you're defined as something. And that's terrifying to people. There's this, it's really interesting. I mean, I've literally seen people describe to me their dream job, get it offered to them and turn it down, not because they don't like it, not because they have some other concrete opportunity that's better, but because the thought of becoming something concrete, even for a few years of time, is more scary than to continue to have this possibility cloud of what they what, what potentially they could do, even though they're not doing any of it. And that's and I always was really struggling with that, but I think you're pointing that there's a that 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 goes much deeper. There's something happening where people are kind of looking to almost escape elements of identity that are or ident- or of humanity that are built into nature and trying to break those limits because they feel constrained by them or something. Does that, does that, am I, am I touching on a, on a related phenomenon? Yeah, hundred uh, percent. It, it is a little uh, complicated in the following sense. Uh, it, it, you're right. It's crazy to see the value of a dream job in people's minds becoming the dream more than the job. At the same time, like, you know, when you do have a resurgence of religious sensibility that is caused by these conditions that we're in now, uh, what you see is um, is a is a, uh, a a shift in the soul toward renunciation as a mode of life. Mm. Uh, you know, asceticism has mm. a long and storied tradition, and it's not always just sort of going to sit on a pillar in the middle of the desert or wearing a hair shirt or you know sort of praying until your knees bleed. I mean, there are, there are other ways that you can do this, and the monastic tradition is a good example of this. Um, I think you know whether it's it's still very small, but the lying flat movement in China um, is an example of this. You know, where you got these these Chinese guys who are like, you know, I am totally insignificant. Uh, I am being asked to dedicate my life to productive labor. Why? Why should I bother? You know, why shouldn't I just be like Diogenes and like lay in bed and let my consciousness roam free? You know, um, many uh, Americans, uh, you know, don't need to be told what the acronym NEAT stands for uh, because they are NEATs and they're proud of it. You know, like, why should I work at Chipotle when I can just like be my true self on the internet? Um, what, what does the acronym stand for? Maybe I'm out of touch. Uh, so it's no education, employment, or training. Okay, got it. All right. Uh, so you sort of like uh, it's it's like the the vol cell of being like redundant, yep, socioeconomically. Um, and so under these conditions, it's it is natural and to be expected that more and more people will say things like, you know what. I just like, I don't want to have ambitions. I don't want to climb the ladder. I don't want to join the rat race. I might not even want to have children. I might not even want to have a pet. Um, What would be unnatural is for those people to say, what I do want to do is I want to become an avatar in the metaverse and inhabit this kind of, you know, this this entity that, I mean, I looked at the the sort of Facebook teaser for, for Meta and it's like, these avatars have like, have like no bodies below where their navel should be, but they obviously have no navels, no navels, no genitalia, no legs. They're just sort of these like floating sort of entities. I mean, this is like, this is a profound direction, a break uh, from from the, the, the most simple and, and primal uh, characteristics of being a human being. Um, what would be more natural is to say like, we need to gather together in religious communities and spend all of our time basically you know, laboring just to to feed ourselves uh, and worshiping God. 
this has been going on for thousands of years. I think that it's going to continue. Uh, and it's not just going to be, you know, Dominicans and Franciscans. I would not be surprised at all if something akin to woke monasteries developed. Um, I would not be surprised at all if something like Bitcoin monasteries developed. You know, where where guys who really just like, hey, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm really smart. I'm pretty spurgy. I don't really care about sex. I don't really want to reproduce my offspring. I want to build something that is monumental and sacred and, you know, maybe permanent, maybe not, but something that can last long outlast my existence or, you know, or the existence of, of anyone in my family. Uh, that is a deep seated longing within the human heart. Uh, and, you know, and, and Bitcoin blockchain provides people who feel that with a way of participating constructively in the creation and maintenance of culture. You know, you can really create uh, religious monuments, uh, uh, religious institutions um, in that way uh, without, you know, having to bow to Bezos or to the Federal Reserve or, you know, to a woke commissar who's going to delete you because you like use the wrong word today. Uh, there's a lot of possibility there. And I think there's, um, you know, there, there are many paths uh, that someone can take to to remain human and to protect and defend our humanity. And some of those, I think, are going to be, you know, ways of renunciation uh, on the Internet. Hmm. What you mentioned a digital war. What would a digital war look like? Yeah, well, uh, I mean, exhibit A, Christopher Steele, right? Like, who's that guy? Is he just like a retired British spy who Fusion GPS tossed a few bucks to his like business intelligence consultancy to draft a memo on Donald Trump's like dirty laundry that then became a pretext for a federal investigation that caused the, you know, what is that all about? And it's like, well, and this is just one example, you know, uh, Christopher Steele was the guy who ran uh, the Russia desk for MI6 during the financial crisis. So, you know, if, if, uh, if uh, John Le Carre uh, has any credibility as a guy who spent basically his entire life in spy world, uh, hanging out with people and getting like cool stories for his novels and, you know, and, and wanting to prove some points obliquely, but wanted to, you know, to, to shine a spotlight on stuff. Um, he was quite forthright, you know, toward the end of his life, you know, maybe 10 years ago or so, uh, that, uh, he was convinced that, that, uh, the more or less the British financial system was, was bailed out during the financial crisis, not by the federal reserve, not by the bank of England. Uh, but by the Russian mob, which is probably one of the very few places that you could get liquid capital and the volume that you needed to prevent the Royal Bank of Scotland from going down the toilet and tanking the, Russia, the British financial system in about 48 hours. Uh, speculative, yes, but, you know, welcome to Spy World. Uh, welcome to Five Eyes. You know, the, 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 the GCHQ and the NSA are basically one organization, U.S. and, and U.K. intelligence, uh, operating as more or less a sovereign entity. Uh, you know, is this consistent with America's form of government? Like, that's an interesting question. But all these gray areas uh, are becoming battlegrounds right now. Uh, if you if you look at, you know, what what global Britain wants, if you look at what uh, the Biden administration wants, if you look at what's going on in Canada and Australia and New Zealand with all the lockdowns, vaccine passports, you know, they they are clearly trying to move the West uh, in in an, in an unprecedented direction. Uh, and they're trying to do so quickly, and they're trying to do so with much less control over the system than they thought they had. Uh, that is 
bound to create conflict. It's clear that the U.S. and the U.K. have adversaries uh, around the world. Um, there was there was a bet made by the Western elite that they could get rich off of uh, pumping money into China faster than China could get rich off of money being pumped into China. Uh, that bet didn't pay off. Uh, China, you know, China won, and uh, and and Chinese uh, influence is ex continuing to expand. Uh, throughout the world as a result. And the reality is with digital technology, it's just easier to do offense than defense. Uh, this has been the Achilles heel for our intelligence agencies. I mean, I think they've done some really nasty, rotten stuff that is inconsistent with, uh, with their constitutional obligations to our regime. But the flip side of this is, you know, these, uh, a lot of these folks are just good people who have a brain in their head and they're, they're trying really hard not to lose the, the intelligence war uh, to Russia and China and others. Um, and that war is primarily played out digitally because, uh, at least so far, uh, people are, are unwilling and unable to get into a, uh, a conventional confrontation for good reason, I would argue. Uh, so, you know, that stuff's playing out. Um, and those aren't the only powers involved. I mean, you, you just look at what uh, Emmanuel Macron is doing. Like, he's always looking for an edge. Uh, he and, and others in Europe are conscious that if Europe doesn't have its own independent sort of civilizational answer to taking control of, of AI and digital technology within its borders, then it's just going to become a client of someone else's internet. You know, it's compute or be computed. And that's why Bitcoin is so important is because it gives ordinary people the ability right now to take some control over, I think, the most powerful defensive digital weapon. Uh, one that allows them to create culture, exchange it, value it, share it, make it memorable and make it uh, profitable. Um, and to do so, you know, on that permanent ledger, uh, telling a database what to do. If Americans, ordinary Americans can't tell databases what to do, if they're banned from from mining crypto or if they're banned from uh, from buying high power GPUs, then, you know, then you're just you are on the conveyor belt into the vivarium. And uh, and you know, I don't think that's good enough for, for most Americans. I think they sense that this is where things are going. They're frustrated. They don't know what to do about it. But the reality is, you know, you don't have to become sort of like a, a, you, you don't have to work at Google to understand how this stuff works. Um, I was not as educated about this stuff uh, as I am now, even just a couple of years ago. Um, but the reality is, you know, if you if you just take like a, a day or two out of uh, uh, every month, you can get up to speed pretty fast. And so, you know, I published uh, my book, Human Forever, at canonic.xyz uh, on, onto the blockchain and for sale in Bitcoin. Uh, the NFTs, as, as of this conversation, the NFTs are selling. Uh, you know, price to sell at $600 a pop, because this is like how we demonstrate our worth. This is how we lead in the space. So you step into the market and you say, this is, you know, this isn't just a, uh, I mean, no offense, but like a cartoon gorilla, you know, this is like, you get a real book, you get uh, the ability no to like- taken, you're preaching to the choir here. <laughs> yeah, you, you get the ability to build something together that is that is impervious to attack by people who want you to be silent and compliant. I, I, I'm, we're definitely going to come back to the Bitcoin thing in a minute here. Um, do you uh, do you believe in evil? Oh yeah, for sure, it's out there. What is, what is evil? What is evil? This is like such a great pivot. I really appreciate you just like pivoting hard into the evil question. Um, evil is uh, so. Look, you know the earliest. Uh, myth or legend or story that is theological uh, in the West is um, is the war in heaven, uh, is the spiritual war in heaven, um, and the 
desire by the most powerful of the angels to challenge God for divinity, uh, not just for power, uh, but for authority over all of creation, authority over the, the, the ability to create, not just the force of creation. Um, you know, China has a different sort of cosmological or origin story. And that I think is one reason why China and the US are so different and will remain so different for all of eternity, uh, so long as there are human beings around. Um, that insight uh, that, uh, that the, the longing for divinity and the, uh, the jealousy toward divinity, um, and the, uh, uh, sense of vengeance aroused by commandments, by a sacred no, by sacred limits. Um, the, the insight that that is that is something that is not just primal, but that that is exists even outside and above our given humanity, I think, is the key to understanding the nature of evil. Um, evil is not something that we came up with. It's not something that's unique to us. Um, and, uh, and it is not something that we can master or defeat or, or make go away uh, unaided. I, I, it, tell me if this is too far out of scope. I don't know how much you get into sort of your metaphysics uh, in the book or, or want to hear, but do you, what do you feel about the idea? Okay. So that's kind of, you know, the mythical presentation of, of evil as a sort of impulse to defy the, defy the, the boundaries of reality or, or um, you know, what, what, the divine intelligence has set forth. Do you believe that there are spiritual entities or entities in other dimensions that we can't see that are, that are a part of this war that you've described that's going on this digital war and sometimes material wars. Um, do you see those as just sort of useful metaphors or as actual existing entities that we have to uh, grapple with in some sense? Well, you know, your mileage may vary is always the caveat for stuff like this, but I think it is unquestionably within the mainstream, certainly of American public opinion, uh, not just that there are sort of demons and angels in the biblical sense, uh, but that there are entities. Um, you know, if you take too much DMT, you will encounter these things. And there are, you know, I've read the, 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 the trip records and like, it's just a fact of our situation. Um, and you can ascribe to any number of religious beliefs in order to uh, find a way, you know, a path that will lead you to that, uh, that kind of confrontation. Um, you know, for me, uh, feeling the presence of evil was something that kicked in when I was quite young. Um, some people hmm. don't really feel it so much or run across it that much. Uh, but, you know, it's, uh, it's, I think Alexis de Tocqueville was right when he said that religion is the permanent state of mankind. Uh, and I think that it's, it's, you know, you really have to try to, uh, to shut down your own perceptions and experience as a human being, uh, not to kind of encounter uh, an awareness of 
uh, a, a spiritual dimension of life, even if it's right here in our in our space and time. Uh, and in fact, you know, many of the people who do make the the attempt to completely shut down in that way, uh, you know, through the use of uh, very powerful drugs, for example, um, in fact, make the other discovery, which is, wow, if I try to shut down my humanity, I rip holes in uh, in reality as we know it. And um, and I experience the uh, the destruction of my soul and it leads to insanity. And, you know, many of those people are lucky to sort of live to tell the tale, which oftentimes they do. Yeah, it's it's been really interesting to watch. I mean, I you know, I grew up. Um in a Christian tradition. And, you know, I've, I've explored all, all various, you know, philosophical religious things, but I've never, I've never necessarily um, left that at least in a sort of the basics uh, of Christianity, but it's been very interesting for me to watch in the last few years, many, many friends who have never been religious at all. Most of them were atheists. And then maybe they sort of softened a little bit and were like agnostic or somewhat atheistic. But in the last several years, it's been really interesting. I think it's a combination of seeing things like, you know, like say all the Jeffrey Epstein stuff. Like, hey, there really are like child sex traffic rings involving very hype, doing horrible, horrible things. And then you start to see all this, the, every government in the world in lockstep, lock everybody down starting in early 2020 and start doing these crazy things and doing things that were not just lies coming out of media and, and politicians, but so obvious that it wasn't like a mistake or just a little bit of bias snuck in. And I've, and I've watched a lot of friends suddenly say they started to look into various religious traditions and spirituality, not because they can met God on the road to Emmaus or whatever, but because they, they got a glimpse of something demonic, something they, they said, there isn't a natural explanation for some of the things that I see happening. There's some dark force at work here. There's some, you know, it's like in Lord of the Rings when, when they, they see Theoden and he's not himself and he's doing stupid things. He's like, something is here. There's some influence here um, that goes beyond just political self-interest. It's been really interesting to see that, to see people sort of begin to search for the positive side of spiritual life because they were confronted with what they felt like was an undeniable existence of uh, a spiritual darkness in the world. Um, so that's just, it's, it's been very interesting. Um, yeah. Okay, I mean, tell it, me, it, it, it was ever, it was ever thus. I mean, people have been, have been noticing, you know, the noticers have been noticing this for forever, for a very long time. Um, uh, you know, cards on the table, you know, like, this, this is what I believe right here. So, yeah. you know, your mileage may vary once again, yeah. but uh, one, th one thing that I would want to note on this point is, you know, as, as a Christian, um, and as I was working on this book, um, it, it was, uh, it, it was very significant to, to what it, what it was that I, that I discovered, I really wanted to say, uh, that when Jesus is talking to his disciples about the end times, um, what he says is, uh, many people will claim that it is the end times when it is not. Many people will be out there sort of like telling you to, that now is the time to panic and it's all coming to an end and it won't be. Uh, when I come back, you will know that it's me. There will not be like, oh, but is it the real Jesus? And uh, and most of all, he said, it is, it, 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 it's, it's only going to happen at a time 
of God the Father's choosing. Not even I know when the end will come. That is not usually what you get out of the sort of apocalyptic religious <laughs> No. Uh, and at a moment when every single day people log on and they are told by people who are richer than them, people who are smarter than them, people who, you know, sometimes it's Bill Gates, but sometimes it's people who are considerably better looking than them, you know, elites, quote unquote, saying it's over, like we should live in space, like you have to just eat mealworms, like, you know, shrink down, like humble yourself, like don't leave your house, like everything's dying. Uh, even the Financial Times, you know, there's an ad banner ad, like an internal banner ad running on the Financial Times. It's like, it's like, why should we go back to something that's not working anyway? You know, it's like, what? You know, like this is the Financial Times. And even guys like Bezos, you look at the top CEOs with the exception, partial exception of, of Elon Musk. Nobody seems to be having a good time being a CEO. Everyone wants to become a priest in the new cyborg theocracy. Uh, and that is telling. And, and what it is telling me is that, you know, Christians and everyone else should take a deep breath and recognize that, you know, there are good times, there are bad times. Sometimes we get ourselves into trouble and are deservedly punished by our arrogance and stupidity. Um, but those aren't the end times. That's something much different. Plagues come and plagues go. Temperatures rise, temperatures fall. You know, we can talk about sort of AGM and all that stuff, but like the apocalyptic mindset, really, if you listen to like Marshall McLuhan, you know, he didn't say he was an optimist or a pessimist. He said he was an apocalypticist, meaning, you know, an unveiler, someone who just kind of like puts his effort into trying to reveal what it is that already happened. Um, that's a good apocalyptic mindset. Uh, and that looking at, at digital taking over the world as an apocalyptic event, not one that that brought the end times upon us and just just destroyed yeah. the purpose of life, but something that that dropped the scales from our eyes and threw open the curtain on what what it is that we've really done. Uh, that's that's stunning, you know. It's it's a it's a gut check. It's perhaps a come to Jesus moment, you know. It can be many things, but one thing that it isn't is the end times. Yeah, it's so funny you mentioned that. As I, as I said, I grew up Christian. I feel like the book of Revelation in particular, it's sort of like a, like a verse check test. Like people just read into it, whatever, like whatever, whatever they bring to it, they interpret uh, all of these wild things as, oh yeah, see, this is, uh, this is describing, you know, this president or this, you know, they want to specifically map it onto their situation and say, this is telling us that we're right at the very end, um, which I think is a, a little bit misleading, perhaps a little dangerous, a little bit humorous. Um, how how did you get here? How did you end up writing this book? What brought you to this point? Give me a little bit of your backstory. <laughs> I mean, I, I will begin to out myself and date myself as being old enough to remember when uh, Admiral Stockdale was in the, uh, the one vice presidential debate when it was uh, a three-way race between Bush, the elder, Bill Clinton and uh, and Ross Perot, and uh, you know Perot at that time was really at the peak of his powers. He was at, at about I think a, a solid twenty five percent, at least in the in the generic public opinion polls. Uh, and there was there was a real question as to whether he might actually be able to pull this thing out or at least throw the election one way. Only or the other. time in my life a third party has ever even remotely been considered uh, something threatening or viable. 
Yeah. And I think the reality is that, you know, if you want to blame someone for us, us still not being rid of the Clintons, you know, maybe it's Ross Perot, you need to blame something. <laughs> so I'm thinking about, it. but so it's first, uh, first vice president, first and only, I think, of vice presidential debate that year. Uh, and you had, uh, you had Admiral Stockdale there standing in the middle, you know, a guy who had a very illustrious military career, uh, but who was, you know, who's getting on in years and he's standing there with this kind of, you know, half, half proud and half uh, puzzled look on his face, trying to blink into the, the lights of the cameras. And it's finally his turn to speak. Uh, and he opens his mouth and he goes, who am I? Why am I here? And that was the end. That was the end. His reputation was sealed. And really what he was trying to do is he was just trying to introduce himself uh, to a national audience. Um, and so now, now it is my turn. Uh, I must now drink of this bitter <laughs> and say, who am I and why am I here? Um, I'm half Greek on my father's side, uh, really Spartan on my father's side. Uh, and you know, I suppose that's fairly unusual and didn't count for much in, uh, in America until somewhere around the current era when suddenly, uh, you know, you have all these, these guys in their twenties going like, yes, it is Sparta that is right. We must return. You know, we need the Leonidan Republic and we can do this. And like, uh, it's been a fascinating turn of events and one that I, uh, you know, I certainly do not begrudge, uh, although, and I mentioned this a little bit in the book, um, I can say from, from history and from experience that uh, even the mighty Spartans, you know, even the, the Greeks, the, the, the glory of uh, the glory and origin of Western civilization um, have a very spotty track record. If you look over the centuries, um, you know, it wasn't that long after uh, Plato and Socrates that you get uh, uh, Alexander the Great sort of conquering, you know, the quote unquote known world, uh, looking pretty good, having all of his soldiers marry the, the Persian girls so that he can create a, a new Hellenic race, um, made it all the way to Afghanistan, that, that, that sort of Greco Afghan empire lasted for 300 years, so like, don't tell me this is the graveyard of empires. Is strategic incompetence, um, and then he dies, and suddenly there's you know there's a big civil war, and uh, his various generals carve out different pieces of the empire, uh, and the Ptolemies take the the Egypt chunk of the empire, and they rule Egypt for three hundred years right up until Mark Antony. Uh, the problem is, uh, over that period of time, they managed to to slip from the heights of of Greek civilization at its best and most virtuous uh, to the most depraved and degenerate form of uh, institutionalized barbarism uh, that was the, the Egyptian monarchical tradition. Uh, you know, uh, uh, brothers and sisters marrying each other, having inbred offspring, uh, worshiping themselves and one another as gods. By the end there, you know, people think of Cleopatra as this great beauty and like maybe she was, but, you know, the, the historical record clearly shows that like that family line was so genetically mutated. It was a hideous abomination. You know, the, the, the last of those Ptolemaic pharaohs, the family tree had become a Gordian knot, you know, which, which Alexander had to cut through the actual Gordian knot if, uh, if the legend is true. Uh, and, and Rome came along and had to cut through that knot. Uh, and so, it, you know, came to an end the, the glory that was, that was Greece. Uh, 
So, so as someone who was raised quite culturally Greek um, and yet raised Christian at the same time, uh, you know, I, I like to think that I kind of developed a um, a functioning set of you know both kind of kind of pride in in all that that entailed, and also an awareness of how easily even the very best human arrangements can can slide off. The, their axis and and become uh, mutated parodies of themselves. Uh, uh, long story short, um, uh, PhD in government, not political science at Georgetown, because that's how they do things at Georgetown. Uh, and uh, well, you were right time, in uh, you were right in uh, in the belly of the beast there. That uh, government yeah, well, program at Georgetown, and some 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 people there that will end up, uh, you know trying to wield the, the ring of power. Yes, it, in many such cases. Uh, I'd, I'd started a blog e waiting for my grad school apps to come in. That turned out to be a good idea, uh, kind of perversely, but very amusing. You know, that, that kind of, it was in my, my mid to late 20s and enrolled in DC and turned out that there were, you know, maybe about 100, 100 you know, guys and girls who were, who were kind of chasing after the same biscuit at that time. Uh, and they all sort of went on to become fixtures of the mainstream media. And, uh, you know, there was a time when that felt very exciting and significant and that time has passed. Uh, <laughs> so I, I get my PhD in hand at long last, uh, and then 2016 happens. And, uh, I, I'd done a book on, on Alexis de Tocqueville, as I mentioned, called the art of being free. Uh, the gist of that book was, hey, you know, if you read uh, Tocqueville along with some other 19th century uh, theorists of democracy, I'm thinking Emerson, Benjamin Constant, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, what you discover is they all kind of accept or admit uh, or, or fret over the way that democratic life makes people crazy, hmm. makes them maybe not clinically insane, maybe not need to be institutionalized. But it applies certain kinds of, of strains and pressures on the spirit, on the soul, uh, that um, that people are not necessarily going to be uh, naturally inclined to deal with in a in a healthy and stable way, and which therefore pose significant new challenges to to statesmen. Um, and so my my wager with that book was that if I argued that, hey, you know, we're kind of stuck with this craziness, but there are ways within that that culture to actually reinforce and maintain our sanity uh, and move forward together in friendship, uh, that that would be a message that people would be willing to listen to and maybe reflect on. Uh, and there were some, um, but, you know, I did this book through through one of the big five, which I guess technically are now probably more like a big two. Uh, publishing company, uh, you know, you get the the book agent in New York and the editor in New York and New York, New York, New York, and uh, you know they did a fine job. It was just poof, my book appeared in every Barnes and Noble in, in the known universe, and that was great. Um, but at the end of the day, in spite of the fact that I was able to call in a lot of favors and uh, you know get the interview in the Washington Post and yada yada. Uh, did the book sell? Was it a runaway success? No, it was not. Did it create the kind of illusion of success so that everyone thought that I was doing really well? Yes, it did. Uh, and at the end of that process, you know, doing the book tour, having the book parties, going to Austin, book people or whatever it is, you know, sort of like checking all the boxes um, 
felt pretty good until I got home. You know, I hadn't been working for a couple months and like not in the liberating sense. The fridge was full of rotten food. I was exhausted and I was out of ideas. And I, just the thought of like, well, you know, back to work, back to having more ideas, like, you know, keep whipping the mule until it dies. And I felt like the mule was was starting to starting to to, to fade, starting to experience organ failure. Um, and shortly thereafter, uh, you know, book came out in inauguration weekend uh, of uh, of the, the Trump years, uh, and watching what was unfolding with Trump and in the Trump years, and uh, sort of staring down the barrel of like, am I really going to just have to become a sort of ideas festival of my own in order to make it in this world? Uh, I, you know, maybe not a dark night of the soul, but it was one of those moments where I could feel that things were changing, um, in a direction that, uh, that made it seem as if most Americans were going like, no, we do not want to be sane. We do not want to like learn about friendship and become, you know, sort of rediscover the art of friendship and freedom. No, we want to be crazy. We want to form mobs. We want to spiral and we don't understand anything anymore. We just know that we don't like it. And so I thought, okay, if, uh, if as a political, political theorist, a, a doctor of political theory, um, I do not have anything to say about how technology is causing people to choose or to feel forced to go in the wrong direction, then, you know, academic political theory probably deserves to die the same death as every other irrelevant and obsolete, you know, academic subfield that there is. Uh, and this is before. It may you know, still need to die that death, but go ahead. <laughs> it, it, it may. It may. Your book, your I mean, book. Your can't book can't do it myself. Of yes, of course. <laughs> Uh, no, there, you know, there's some good folks, like that. but you know, people are like, oh, how did wokeness take over so fast? And it's like, well, because all these disciplines have nothing to say about what the frick is going on. That is how wokeness took over so fast. Uh, and under digital conditions, you know, all these medieval patterns of, of, of thought and feeling come back and the, the medieval origins of the university are, are rearing their head once again. Anyway, so, you know, long story short, too late. Uh, I thought, gosh, I need to actually uh, sort of beginner's mind this and just learn media theory and learn, sort of understand what digital really is and how it developed and who was involved and who are the thinkers. And so uh, I was a fellow at that time, a sort of baby fellow at the Center for the Study of Digital Life. There's a guy who runs it called Mark Stallman. He's sort of a zealot of, uh, of tech, you know, going back from taking AOL public all the way up to to present day. Uh, and he's a big McLuhan guy. And so I kind of started with Marshall McLuhan and, and worked my way through the, through the corpus. Um, and, uh, you know, after three or four years, I felt like, um, uh, I was able to say something of helpful of significance, uh, and that, that kind of the, the public mind had sort of moved in a direction that would be more receptive. Uh, but I also felt an urgency, you know, it was, it was summer, uh, the sort of lockdowns in LA had finally come to an end summer of, of this year. Uh, and, you know, I, I kind of secured a, a, a three week sabbatical, uh, in, at my job and, um, and wanted to write something that I could get out into the bloodstream very quickly, uh, not wait for an editor and an agent and a publishing house to say like, oh, you can't use that word or like, oh, you know, you need to make sure that you add this or that. Um, I found that to be 
hostile to not just intellectual freedom, but to the life of the mind and to the, the power and authority of human communication. Uh, and so I was able to sort of write this thing in, in a very compressed time frame, uh, kept it under 300 pages. Uh, Canonic had gotten to a point where, you know, the, the model was proven and, uh, and it just, you know, it, it just made a lot of sense to do it that way. And, you know, I couldn't be happier with, with how this is launching and, and what it's demonstrating, you know, it's the medium is the message with this book. Yeah. So we'll, we'll end with a little discussion about the launch on Canonic, but one, one final topic before we do, um, Bitcoin, you mentioned a little bit before, I'm curious why. I'm going to play devil's advocate here. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, a fan of Bitcoin, or at least what I believe Bitcoin is capable of being, if not necessarily what it predominantly is today. Um, why, why do you see Bitcoin as a powerful, positive tool for sort of the, uh, the human side and the things that you're, you're talking about, rather than one of the dangers, or maybe it's both, but on the of technocratic side because the idea of a uh global immutable public uh although you can encrypt some things but largely it's public ledger um where all bits of data are potentially connected to um, economic exchanges and all of that is trackable and traceable there is a version of that that sounds like a technocrat's wet dream, like a panopticon sort of technology. Um, why do you see in Bitcoin something liberating and something powerful for humanity? Yeah, well, I mean, you're right. You know, this is uh, uh, Vitalik uh, Buterin refers to Ethereum, at least his ambition for it, as one computer for the whole world. Uh, I think Bitcoin got there first. Um, I think that is why, you know, Wall Street wants it to be just another asset class that goes right into their portfolio. Uh, you know, I think like the Salesforce vision of Bitcoin is one where it is not used by ordinary people to create and and value memorable culture uh, that they use to protect and defend their their agency as you know citizens and as human beings and family members community you know uh, that is not that is not the uh, the the design that um, that the institutional bigwigs have in mind for Bitcoin because they see that this technology, which is already out there, is one that is capable of serving as the plumbing for a world system of, uh, you know, I don't even know if governance is the right word anymore for what for what that would be. Uh, and so there's kind of a paradox here, which is, you know, this technology is not God. It is not an idol. We should not worship it. We should not fall on our knees and go, we created something better than we could ever be. We must placate it and try to, <laughs> you know, uh, that is not the right approach. Uh, it is more like plumbing than it is like a God. Uh, but at the same time, just because it is more like plumbing doesn't mean that it's neutral in some cosmological sense. It's not neutral. Like digital technology wants, wants, uh, wants interoperability. Um, and human beings do not want to be interoperable. We want to be incommensurable. Yeah, sometimes we like being part of a crowd or a mass or a mob. You know, I've been to Coachella more than once. Like, I get it. Uh, but we like having it both ways. We like, you know, when the craziness is over, we can sort of go home and be back in our beds and be ourselves again. Uh, digital devices don't think that way. They do not care when they experience life in the swarm because they have no individual identity 
And, you know, they're not even conscious. And all these people who think that we can upload our consciousness into the machines can't even explain what human consciousness is. So, um, so the technology itself universalizes itself, but it doesn't universalize the people who use the technology mm. uh, because the nature of this technology is to make people sort of confront the fundamental questions of human identity that we know are not going to consolidate under one single set of answers anymore. Mm. Uh, so there are some paradoxes here. And uh, what we need to remember is that freedom emerges from order, not the other way around. You know, I don't make the rules, like, don't come crying to me, like, this is just the way that it is, and we have to just deal with it. Uh, and so the the importance of Bitcoin is not simply that it allows us to do cool stuff, even though it does, or even that it allows us to, uh, to uh, you know, resist uh, control by people who disagree with us, although it can do that. Um, but simply that it is uh, the, I think, the most powerful uh, digital technology um, and that if ordinary people do not get their hands on it and start slapping around the hash, telling compute what to do, if you are not computing, you are, you are being computed. And if you are not controlling the database and telling the database what to do, then you are in someone else's database being told what to do. Uh, so, you know, as, as, as much choice architecture as Bitcoin opens up, I think we really don't have a choice, but to get our hands on this thing, uh, mm -hmm. before it is used, um, for purposes that are contrary to human identity and human existence. Mm -hmm. That said, uh, yeah. that said, you know, Westerners, Americans, Anglophone people in charge are, headed for a a painful end if they think that by taking control of bitcoin they can rule the world uh talk to china talk to india talk to russia talk to israel even some europeans it ain't going to happen and so you know there's there's reason for for a resurgence in human pride here in the salutary sense but there's also, you know, uh, a resurgence of humility is a big part of it too. Mm. Um, we face a, a daunting challenge that will take, you know, centuries to uh, to to get our arms around and uh, and to to prove our metal within. Um, you know, leadership uh, is about stepping up to that challenge and you know giving your your offspring something to remember and something to tell their offspring about. So let's mm. do this, man. I love, I love that whole segment there. Your, your breakdown of, of Bitcoin, because it's a very difficult thing, especially on like social media or whatever to, to present the, the idea that one is both optimistic about the power and possibility uh, and even the current reality of something like Bitcoin. while Also how, you know, pointing out how absurd it is to be like, well, you just put laser eyes on and you buy and you hold and, uh, you know, that's it. Then we win. And, you know, every time the price goes up, that means that humanity is winning and freedom is winning. And like that, to point out the absurdity of some of those ideas, while also not being, you know, someone who thinks Bitcoin is doomed to fail or bad, um, is not is not particularly easy in a soundbite world, but I think in just a couple minutes there, you did a really good job on a high level of 
kind of presenting the, the, the fullness there and the nuance to it. It's, I mean, it's, it's fire that humans, Hey, now we have this tool. You can run away and be scared of it, but it's probably going to burn you or someone's going to find a way to turn it into, you know, firearms and control you. Uh, or you can try to master it um, and utilize it as a tool and even maybe use it as a defense against those who try to come and, and oppress you. It's, it's both of those things at the same time. It's all of that. It's a, it's a massive, it's a massive disruption. The cat is out of the bag and it can be utilized in phenomenal ways, in dangerous ways. Um, but running and hiding from it is not necessarily the solution or just assuming that it's all good or it's all bad uh, is, is a bit naive as well. So um, let's end here. Canonic. So you, um, you launched your book on canonic.xyz, which is on Bitcoin. Uh, it's on the Bitcoin SV blockchain. And I notice, I think this is so cool. You're kind of doing the best. So, so I've, I've, some of the books that I previously published, I just put up the digital version on Canonic just for fun. And then I published one book exclusively on Canonic as a, um, as a physical book with just 100 copies. And you, you buy the NFT and then you can redeem it. But you did something really interesting. You kind of are getting the best of both worlds here, from my understanding. You are, releasing an NFT, a hundred copies. And, and it literally went live like less than an hour before we started this. And when we started, you had already sold about half of the copies. So who knows if there are any left, but um, you're selling physical, like really beautiful, high quality, like leather bound, limited edition, like a hundred of these signed by you uh, along with an NFT that comes with an early release digital version of the book. And, and those are $600 a piece. So you sort of get that the people who really want it, not only the content of the book, but what it means that the book is out, what it means that it's out at this time, what it means that it's published on Bitcoin. Maybe they're fans of you. There's several sort of collector components in there. So you get to carve off that market, but then you are going to do a later mass paperback release for sort of the general public. I think that is a really, really interesting sort of tiered approach of like a select special edition and then you have this sort of broader thing. Um, what what made you choose Canonic and choose this approach to publishing the book? Yeah, well, I mean, it was an easy choice with Canonic just because it was I, I, it was ready. I could use it right now to do what I wanted. And yeah, I, I, say, I tested I it early no for you, and we worked out the kinks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, no, I mean, you know, like you you kind of go if your friend hands you the tool that you need, you've used the tool, you know, and it's really just that, that simple for me. I mean, you can go into all these kinds of abstruse discussions about which coin is better than what coin and what the use cases are and no, 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 And, you know, I, it's, I'm not going to slap someone across the face if they try to have that conversation. But I think like at the end of the day, at the beginning of the day, if you can do what you feel called upon to do and demonstrate something to people that you feel like really needs to be demonstrated and you can do it right now, do it. Yes. Uh, so that was my use case. Um, I, I, you know, I'm glad that you appreciate the the tiered thing. You know, I, I think I, I made I poked some gentle fun at our cartoon gorilla NFT community out there. Um, I, you know, it's uh, it's it's kind of ridiculous in in one sense, but in another sense, like ridiculous is not always bad. Uh, not people inherently. Are, people are playing around with something people new. People are playing and, around. Uh, yeah. And the reality is that, you know, uh, NFTs are not just like trading cards. You, they're also like VIP passes. Um, and I think the, the way in which NFTs can be used to create um, a, an exclusive community of opt-in, you know, uh, uh, fellow travelers or super fans or allies, whatever you want to call them, um, that relationship can last as long as the NFT lasts. 
you know, once you create that sort of micro community, you can, uh, you know, you can drop new, new merch, new items, new content, new products to that community first. I mean, you can, you can really grow that relationship and nurture it and use it to model the creation of, of overlapping and related relationships with other, other communities. And I think that's just really powerful. And so, you know, they're, they're like two, two paths. And I think you can travel both paths at the same time using Bitcoin. One being going super exclusive, super iconic, like, you know, cultural artifact status with people who really already get it, really passionate, are ready to put their their coin where their mouth is. Um, and at the same time, you know, also serve and instruct um, a, a general audience, you know, an audience of people out there who are like, well, I, I'm not exactly sure how this works. And I might have to learn a little bit about it, but what I do know is that I hate my 401k and my money in the bank makes, you know, net negative interest. And I just, you know, I see that the IRS wants to monitor every transaction that comes in and out of my bank account. If it's over $600, people will get the oogies and the feeling of just being, you know, you can hear the conveyor belt going as you're headed toward the mouth of this, you know, abattoir. And it's like not a good feeling. And people are, you know, they, they kind of have some coming out of the pandemic, this feeling of having like extra time and not knowing kind of what to do with it. And like everything's, you know, the, the, the kind of life is, is being slowed down artificially in some ways and sped up artificially in others. And they're just kind of like open to leadership, to being told what to do in a constructive way. Hmm. Um, and, you know, and, 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 and we can deliver in, the, in that way too. You know, some, I got some people in the tweets are like 600 bucks for a book. Like this is ridiculous. And it's like, well, you know, it's, it's not just a book number one. And number two, if you do just want the book, then like, you know, just step away from the keyboard until the, the primary market yeah, for the NFTs right. closes. And if, 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 there'll if, be the, books if it doesn't excite you, uh, then it's not for you. If you don't see it as a exciting collectible item, that's, you know, these attributes. Yeah. There's, there's, the ability to slice the market up like that is really, really powerful. Um, and that's something you, you really can't do with, uh, you know, a mass publisher or even just self-publishing on Amazon. You, it's not very easy to have, you know, multiple versions of the book and multiple prints that have different price points and all that type of stuff. So, yeah. Um, and, and all, you know, enclosed within Amazon web services anyway, which is right. you know, not, not right. the way I want this to go down. So I should, I should end this with I'm like an old school official sounding like, the man is James Polis. The book, Human Forever, canonic.xyz or something like that. What do you think? How's that work? I love it. Really, really get the sales pitch in there. Um, this, is, this is absolutely awesome, James. For, definitely go to canonic.xyz to check out the book. Um, and you are on Twitter. Where, where's the best people if people want to follow you in general? Don't tell me we froze at the very last second of this interview. Let's see if we if we come back. All right. Well, if we don't come back, just search James Paulus on Twitter. I, I think I think that's it. An inglorious end to a uh, really really interesting interview. Um, James, I have no idea if you can still hear me, but I'm just gonna I'm gonna wrap it. And uh, go to canonic.xyz, go search up James on Twitter. Oh, you're back. Okay. I'm good. back. All right. Well, that was it. I'm... I was going to end it anyway. Unless you have a final, uh, final uh, send-off or exhortation you want to leave everybody. 
Jeez. Uh, look, um, this stuff is serious, but this is also like our lives. And uh, I've got a I've got a young son. Um, he's going to be coming of age, you know, over the next five or so years. And uh, that generation, generation that was born with no memory of life before the smartphone, uh, is a special generation. Uh, and and those of us who are, you know, their parents' age and are their parents have, I think, a special responsibility to. Uh, to them and to our, our family lines, to our cultures, to our peoples, uh, and to the human race, um, to preserve our memories of the before times, before the smartphone made us all cyborgs, uh, and and pass onto them a respect and a sense of the sacred around their their human being and their human identity, uh, so that you know for for as long as the road ahead goes uh, in this digital age. Um, they they look back with with pride and with humility uh, and with a sense of you know of real belonging uh, to the ages beforehand and uh, and carry our humanity deep 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 into the future. Uh, that's why I wrote this book and you know I'm I'm really just honored and grateful for the support that it's gotten so far and and you know and look forward to uh, to doing my bit as as hopefully we we all can do to uh, to make sure that uh, that we are happy and, and human for a very long time. Love it. James, thanks so much, man. All right. Cheers. Thanks, Isaac.